Hi and welcome to this episode of The Crane, an Africa-China podcast. Welcome. We're very excited to have you here today. My name is Amadeus Musumali and I'm joined by my co-host Mika Nando Erschkok and some special guests. In today's episode, we're going to look at the African Union, its role on the continent, and its relationship with China, its growing relationship with China. To discuss this, we are joined by Patrick Anam, based in Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, Etisiwat Kibret, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, from Development Reimagined, an organization we have often used as source material for some of our previous podcasts and discussions. So we are super excited to have uh, Patrick and uh, Etishiwat, uh, and apologies, I will learn how to say this right during this podcast, with us today. Just to give you a little bit of a background, uh, Patrick is an international trade policy and trade law expert based in Nairobi, Kenya. He focuses on international trade law, trade policy, and regional integration. He's currently engaged with Development Reimagined as a senior trade analyst and was the lead author of Development Reimagined's recent report on Africa-China relations titled From China-Africa to Africa-China, a blueprint for a green and inclusive continent-wide strategy towards China. It's a great report. I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, Etchiwat is a development finance advisor at Development Reimagined, focusing on special drawing rights, multilateral bank reform, and sustainable development goals, and African debt. Her writing can be found in The Diplomat, CSIS Africa, China Dialogue, Africa Business, and more. Prior to uh, working with Development Reimagine, she has had diverse experience in humanitarian and development issues, working in both multilateral organizations and international non-governmental organizations. So very relevant, very, very important. Let's get into the podcast. Welcome. Do the break, do the break. Welcome, Patrick and Estuart. We are so excited to have you here. We have been followers of Development Reimagined since we got our interest peaked in China-Africa relations and the work that's being predominantly done by Africans. So, at least for us, feels so um, uh, disproportionate to where a lot of Western and European academic institutions and think tanks tend to occupy that space. So welcome, and maybe you guys can just tell us a little bit about the work you are both involved in. Hi, yes, um, so I am Zaywitz Kibret. I'm a development finance advisor at Development Reimagined. Um, most of my work is on special drawing rights, um, multilateral development bank reform, um, sustainable development goals, and um, African debt. and. I'm currently based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Awesome. And so we don't only have one person we're introducing or joining us. We also have another. Patrick, if you can share a little bit about yourself. Uh, thank you, Amadeus and, uh, and Kyle. Oh, my name is Patrick Anam. I'm a trade policy analyst with Development Imagined. I'm currently based in, in Nairobi, Kenya. And so just uh, briefly, Development Imagined is an African-led international development consultancy which is headquarters in, in, in China. 
and we also have offices in Kenya and the UK. Uh, our main mission is basically to provide new ideas and solutions to handle the complexities of development across multiple sectors. So in that regard, we've been at the forefront in acting as a bridge between China and Africa in the fields we've worked on, which range from trade investment, climate change, global health, development finance, and, and uh, as well as geopolitics uh, if need arises. But our unique approach to, to this relationship is looking at it from a chain, from, from an Africa-led perspective, and in, in a way, therefore, entrenching Africa agency. We do this because also we have a lot of, of uh, diversity in our team, and because we also work in different areas of the world, and in that regard, we interact with this relationship from different perspectives. So I'm glad to join in this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Patrick. So uh, now that we've done the introduction, we'd like to uh, dive right into the topic, which is uh, the African Union and um, how China interacts with the African Union. Um, so the African Union is turning 60 this year. What is the role of the AU today and how effective has it been in carrying out its mandate at all? What What do you think? Well, Thank you, Amadeus, for the question. Yeah, so the AU is, is turning 60 this year. And uh, of course, this began from 1963, uh, where it was still the Organization for African Unity. And then I think it, it was switched in around 2002. And so in our view and from the research we've carried out, uh, the approach that it has taken initially when, when the AU was formed, it was obviously focusing principally on agitation for, you know, uh, agitation for independence on the continent, as well as Pan-Africanism. But over time, this has shifted, and so we see a lot of focus on development, a lot of focus on trade, as well as a lot of focus on peace and security on, 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 on the continent. From our perspective, the, AU, the AU's role currently uh, in its 60th anniversary must be linked or should be linked with the AU's Agenda 2063, which is... Uh, sort of the blueprint for what uh, Africa needs to be in by the year 2063. Now, we, we say so because this agenda covers virtually everything that the EU ought to stand for from now, which is uh, a development, infrastructure, trade, as well as uh, you know addressing sustainable development goals. And so from my perspective, the mandate has shifted in that manner. And... Uh, at development imagine we've we've researched on several aspects, especially what it takes for the shifting in mandate and what Africa's cooperation, especially the development partners like China, can do or what this cooperation can achieve towards entrenching what, what already has been laid down by, by by the founding fathers and over the years. And just a key key things, for instance, in the in the AU's transition or over the 60 years. It boils down to, to, to aspects like what was declared in Lagos and in Abuja, the Abuja Treaty, which is a precursor for the Africa's uh, economic cooperation or, or economic uh, integration, as well as uh, the, the frameworks which, which are found under the Agenda 2063, uh, which includes uh, infrastructure frameworks as well as frameworks on agriculture. So that's what I would say is the current role for, of the AU. In terms of the effectiveness of, of uh, the AU at the moment, it, it can be looked at from different perspectives. Uh, first is the perspective of the African countries themselves to coordinate, so they address the, the challenges that are facing 
the continent currently, uh, including uh, you know food food insecurity, as well as uh, low intra-African trade. And then secondly, it can also be looked at from the nature of integration that the African countries collectively are having with other development partners, some of which I've mentioned. So to this to this extent, therefore, the AU Commission, the AU Assembly, as well as the different uh, structures founded under the AU become really important in, in addressing how effective this mandate can be carried forward. Perhaps at this point, I would... I would uh, my, my colleague Etze would, would join if she, ha- if she has a point to, to just portray what I've said. Thank you. No, that's great, Patrick. Thanks. Thank you so much, Patrick. That was very, very insightful. So given the recent geopolitical shifts, uh, how would you characterize the AU? Particularly because, you know, we, the headlines are really hot. We get a lot of information from what I would say in our region in South Africa from Western media, um, you both are located in different parts of Africa. So it will be really interesting to hear uh, your take on how you characterize the AU. Uh, thank, thank you. Yeah, so it's, uh, that's a good question. And I think uh, the, the aspect of characterization really would depend on the perspectives, uh, the, the lenses through which you look at it. But just to say that, uh, of course, there have been a lot of geopolitics lately, and uh, in this, we see the greatest one being, of course, the the power play between China and 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 the U.S. We also have the the aspect of the the Russia-Ukraine uh, dispute. Uh, we have uh, geopolitics around climate change. We have we had geopolitics during COVID around uh, vaccine diplomacy, and and. Uh, and basically how Africa was involved in it by, by getting, you know, the shorter end of the stick. Now, the, the AU has dealt with it, in my view, from, uh, from, from an agency point of view. And I would explain this shortly. So when you look at it, uh, when you pick, for instance, the, the COVID uh, uh, vaccine uh, debacle or, or the shortage that the continent really faced during, during the pandemic, uh, there were... There were there were discussions and, and there were there were innuendos towards uh, what would call a vaccine diplomacy, but you, you you saw that when the AU was involved in in procuring of vaccines uh, from different aspects, the, the AU never ne- never never became aligned as it were to, to to any particular power, but rather it it was sourcing out sourcing these these uh, vaccines and procuring these vaccines and and products related to them from different aspects, uh, different areas, be it Russia, China, the US, and even the EU. So that is one aspect of looking at it, that uh, in trying to address a, a crisis which was being played out in, in some instances as, as being geopolitical oriented, the, the EU you know, was focusing essentially on what is important for, for, for its African, African citizens. But it went ahead further and there were discussions around that which are still ongoing involving how Africa can become less dependent on on the supply chains of, of especially essential medicines and vaccines. That is a conversion that's ongoing uh, through through aspects like Africa CDC, which I think we can get into later. The other aspect, uh, geopolitical aspect, is, is regards to the, the China, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And it has it, it's, it's, it's been linked lately to the issue of, again, supply chains in terms of grains, because these two contesting countries are uh, 
very big suppliers of grains to the continent. And therefore, with the blockade that were a result of the war, there's been, there, were, there were some shortages experienced on the continent. But when you look at the decisions or the positions taken by the AU and also the AU Commission, was firstly to say that they will not, uh, at, as a, at, a, at a first instance, take sides in, in the conflict. But secondly, also that they would go further and and try to you know directly deal with the uh, with the antagonist uh, you know independently towards uh, uh, ensuring that what is important for the continent, which is the supply of foodstuff, etc., becomes uh, I mean is resumed. And so th- this is what I would say as regards to 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 Africa's position in 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 the geopolitics uh, that, is, that are ongoing on that are ongoing. And then finally, of course, there's the issue of the the power play between China and 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 the U.S. Again, uh, this is this has different uh, different manifestations. One of them is, of course, is through the the, the U.S. Uh, the blue network, which is which is essentially being seen as as a reactionary infrastructure strategy to to counter what China has been doing on the continent in terms of infrastructure development. And then the EU is also involved in it. They have their global gateway. But when you look at it again from the point of view of where did this, uh, where did, where does Africa stand? Firstly, the continent and and in terms of infrastructure, where China has been a big player, does deal with China on a bilateral basis. And uh, the the construction and the financing that has been done on the continent over the years, why principally as a result. Of, of the the fact that the initial I mean the multilateral lenders and the the old school Britain was institutions were unable at some point to help the continent you know address its infrastructure needs so because that is needed African countries and Africa and the AU generally has to go to where their needs are being restored so in short I think those three instances reflect the fact that the signal that is coming from the continent with regards to geopolitics is to look at issues from an agency point of view. That is from the point of view that what is the interest of the African countries that are involved in one and particular issue. Thank you, Patrick. And um, say what do you have um, any views on the geopolitical shifts and how they have characterized the AU? Um, no, I think, I think Patrick captured that really well. Um, I think especially his point around agency, African agency, I think is really important. So I just want to underscore that. But I think I think he's done a great job of capturing a lot of what we've seen um, at DR over the last few years. Indeed. And uh, Mika, we've, we, have, we have covered the Blue Dot Network or the Blue Dot Network. And the, we've talked about the global uh, gateway at uh, Dongsheng before. Um, it's uh, really interesting that there are these competing infrastructure projects, but we haven't really seen much on the ground in terms of actual projects, actual money flowing into infrastructure in Africa uh, that was promised um, when these projects were announced. And I particularly like, Patrick, I think you raised important areas. Is of course, we have to meet immediate needs of feeding our people. Uh, then, of course, we have the question of the geopolitical things at play. But the one you just the second you mentioned around the ukraine war um i think uh, i just want to ask you just in 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 short uh what do you think the mood though is of african leaders on the continent because i'm I'm not sure i'm sure you both heard uh the namibian prime minister uh sarah kugon i'm gonna have to get this right it's kugon gelwa amadila when she spoke at the munich conference a couple of weeks ago and you know 
she was basically being put in a position where she's like, you have to choose sides. And she's like, we don't want to advance, you know, blame and putting it on who's to blame, but rather we should be using money that is spent on wars and armed conflict to actually deal with the immediate material needs of the people. So I just, I, I wanted to hear from either of you, if you have a take on like what the mood of African leaders is right now, because, you know, some people are thinking, you know, Maybe African leaders don't want the same kind of interference in their own countries. Or could it be a bit more of a refreshing mood of non-alignment where Africans want to rather uh, focus on the bigger strategic issues, the bigger concerns, as you mentioned, climate change, um, economic instability, etc. And could we be seeing a, a moment in which African leaders might be able to leverage their pol- their politics and their you know development goals amidst this kind of geopolitical uh I, would, I wanted to say divide but i would say opening is this opening i think that has also been facilitated in large part by china's um huge investments in the continent as you already mentioned with infrastructure yeah so uh Perhaps Etsy would come in if, if she feels she wants to do so. But I would say that uh, I would go with your, with your second position, which is, uh, you know, African countries, the mood, in my view, and from where we sit, is uh, that of basically countries trying to, African countries trying to uh, engage in a pushback towards uh, the bigger powers trying to sort of box countries to into a certain position regarding, for instance, the Ukraine-Russia war. And uh, this is, illust- illust- is illustrated by the fact that over the con- all over the continent there, whereas this is going on, first of all, if you look at the recent voting on the on the UN Security Council and we, and we look at the map, the map of Africa, it's not a, un- it's not a unified approach. The, you, you find others are having abstaining, others taking clear positions like Kenya. But at the same time, you find that these individual countries, for instance, Kenya and South Africa, you know, they are they are, they are acting, they already having relationships and they are developing relationships with the, with let's say Russia on on one front and also Ukraine on different issues, depending exactly depending on where, where their interests lie. Uh, uh, for instance, Kenya has uh, a lot of engagement currently with Russia, and so does it have with with, with Turkey. And also with China, uh, the EU is, is coming on board uh, through Italy and France, Germany. But at the same time, it's engaging with, with the US on, on, on a multiple of, of issues. Uh, and also, when you look at the South African case, for instance, I think you are you are more qualified to comment on it now that you're based there. The fact that there were these drills that are <clears throat> of, of military drills that are causing a lot of debate as to whether South Africa's position is, and especially not sitting well with the with the, the NATO allied countries like the US. So this is to show that African countries, and through either collectively or through individual countries, are telling the you know the bigger players that look, we should be able to be, to to engage with country X on an issue that we feel is important to us. And we will not be able, we will not take positions just for the sake of it because we want to be aligned. So I think the thinking that countries need to be left free to choose whom to engage with on 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 what issue and on which terms, I think it's really important. It, it has come out lately, in my perspective. You know, some of us are daydreamers, and we hope that this kind of moment will actually mean that 
African leaders can be take more responsible roles in international relations because we are hurtling towards what could be, you know, a, a third world war with the levels of hostility, aggression, belligerence that I think are largely shown. And I'll, you might have heard, listened to our podcast before, so I'm a bit of a leftist, but are largely being shown by an imperialist force, which right now looks like the US from an outside perspective and an inside perspective in South Africa. Um, but I think that takes us then to another aspect we wanted to hear a little about. And I, I know we know that you all are following um, the activities of the African Union quite closely, but you know, recently we, we, there was a conclusion of one of the meetings of the heads of state of the African Union, and we wanted to kind of hear from you guys what you think some of the key outcomes of the event was within, of course, this kind of geopolitical scope we were discussing. And I know one of the elements that they have been trying to push for and has been, I think, the theme for this year is to actually accelerate the implementation of the African continental free trade areas. Um, so I wanted to just hear from you what your what 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 some of the key outcomes of this meeting and how it relates them to the plan ahead, basically for the African Union. Thanks, Michaela. So regarding the 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 the, the AU summit, it's true we, we follow we follow such summits and especially we're interested in what was going on at, in in Addis Ababa. What I would say some of the key outcomes which which I think are important are can be can be put into into three categories. The first one is at the leadership level. The second one is on the health front, and then the third one is on on the trade front, uh, which you just mentioned some of it. Now, regarding the leadership, of course, the 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 chair the chairperson the chairpersonship or the leadership of the AU was was being moved. So we had Comoros take over from from Maki, the Comoros leader taking off from Makisal of, of Senegal. And this came just uh, a few days after Comoros had also ratified the Africa continental fitted area. So basically making it essentially an effective member of the AFCFTA. Now, the second one was on, on the health front. And like I mentioned, Africa CDC has been one of the you know forefront, forefront uh, health institutions on the continent. I'm sort of trying to drive agency in terms of, uh, of of global health and regional health as it were. Sorry for those who don't know the CDC is the Center for Disease Control, correct? Yes, that's correct. Thank thanks for for the clarification. And so And not the American one, right? This is an AU body. Sorry to jump in. Yes, so it it's called Africa CDC. So it, it's it's the African one. And so during 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 the COVID pandemic, it was still a small division essentially under the AU. But over the over the last two years, there was a transformation. So it's it's more or less uh, an autonomous public health agency of the continent. Now, a development that happened at the Africa CDC, which is important, is the appointment of uh, of, of Dr. Jean Kasea from the DRC to basically head it. So. He's coming on a four-year mandate and is now heading at an institution which now has much bigger mandate than the original one uh, had. And so this is this is a, an important development, of course. And uh, the third one in terms of trade, uh, which is uh, important uh, as a development, is regarding uh, the Africa continental free trade area. So 
like uh, you, you've mentioned clearly, the theme for this year was the acceleration of implementation of the, that's the AU theme for 2023, is to accelerate the implementation of the Africa Continental Fleeted Area. Now, at the summit, uh, certain developments occurred. So firstly was the adoption of, of uh, three key protocols on investment and on intellectual property, as well as an on, comp- on competition policy. And then secondly was the, so this, this, these three pro- protocols are part of essentially what are going to make, to make the FCFTA, you know, become more actionable, you know, more implementable across, across the continent. And secondly, also another development is, is when the, when the Secretary General of the FCFTA, Wamkele, was presenting the theme and in his speech he announced he mentioned certain uh, three important aspects of, of trade on the continent one of them is the africa continental fitted area adjustment fund now this is what is uh, what, what the, the this adjustment fund's role essentially is to ensure that countries that are losing out when the asfta fully becomes implemented in terms of, let's say, a country loses from trade diversion, etc., are given some form of cushion. Already, Afriexim Bank has, has put in $1 billion as per the announcement in the capitalization of the fund. The second aspect of it, or a success, is the Guided Trade Initiative, which has a couple of countries like Egypt, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Kenya, among others, trading goods on a preferential basis under the SFTA. And the third one is, of course, the Pan-African settlement, Pan-African payments and settlement system, which is to ensure that, you know, money, people are settling payments across borders without much ado. Now, this this development is important for trade because, uh, I mean, they are sort of the, the engines that are, you know, they're trying to, to, to drive intra-African trade going forward. But whereas that is... You know, it's good that you know there were very important developments and announcements made. Uh, you will notice that you still the African continent still suffer from you know low intra-African trade, and we do not have proper connecting infrastructure across borders, including border infrastructure, and uh, also in terms of productivity, in terms of the category of goods, most of the products that are being sold, either we are exporting or intra-African, are not processed. So. Again, these are challenges which needs to be addressed. So having the adjustment fund, having the trade initiative, having the payment systems and having the protocols are good, are a good start. But taking this forward needs to, you know, they need policy coherence and policy activation at the country level or at the regional level, which in my view and, and, and from our research as developed reimagined has not yet been has not yet been where they're supposed to be. So I think addressing these challenges also are important in, in, in terms of what of what the continental fitted area can take forward. But yeah, it, it's a good start, like I mentioned. And I think uh, there were other announcements around debt uh, where, where the African Development Bank was saying that we, we need a lot of trade finance, I need a lot of investment in, in, in women traders, etc. But I think in terms of the, the impact of that debt into the SFTA and how other development partners can come in uh, will be addressed shortly also with the, by, by my colleague, Etze. 
Thanks for that. I wanted to ask, um, maybe this is a bit too specific, but when you mentioned the need for or the absence of regional coordination around policy coherence, um, having coherent policies that have a regional um, mapping that will actually be implemented, are there any regions that you can see a potential for this happening? Any kind of collection of countries or or uh, groups that you think has right now the highest potential? There are certain examples, I think, which you can put forward uh, of, of groups, groupings which are, which, which are trying. And I think this is important because uh, when you look at the Continental Treated Area Agreement, it, it envisages that uh, the regional economic communities, uh, the, 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 the SADACs and the ESCs and, and COMESA, for instance, should be you know, building blocks towards uh, the bigger continental fritted area. And so in terms of, of, of integration, I think SACU, South Africa Customs Union, is, is one of those well-developed, uh, well-developed markets, regional markets, even though SACU is not uh, formally recognized under the continental fritted area, but it, all the SACU members are within the SADIC area. And so it is one example Actually, from statistics, intra-SACU trade could be the highest, you know, in, in the region. We also we also have the ESC, although there have been a lot of uh, issues towards moving it from from just uh, 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 fr- from where it is to you know things like monetary union and and common market. There have been a lot of hindrances, but I think these two ESC and 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 SACU can be good examples of where some some activities going on and the beauty with it is that uh, the, the 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 agreement the, the continental agreement actually does say that if there's a region that has a, that has achieved an advanced level of integration on a certain issue then they can be allowed to take that issue continent wide so there's a debate around that but the other areas uh, which, which which I think I just need to mention at this point is the fact that one of the hindrances towards you know addressing this this smooth trade across the the continent of course becomes what, what you call rules of origin because there's a lot of conflict between rules of origins in the regional blocks as well as the rules of origin that eventually the continent tolerated area could come up with so Addressing these policy coherences does start at, at the country level. And so there's not much activity at the country level that can, you know, you can with a fixed, with, with, with precision say, okay, fine, country X is doing it right. Why? Because some of these uh, trade regulations and rules and, and treaties need implementation by changing the behind the border rules, behind the border laws and behind the border measures. And so some countries have, you know, been, of course, holding on to some of their, what they call policy space. And so this is one of the aspects that I think can be addressed and needs to be addressed to make this trade area a truly successful as it is being portrayed. So um, moving on from that point, um, what has the AU's work with China looked like and what lies ahead? We're really curious about that because we're seeing a lot more engagement from the Chinese side with the AU directly 
um, as we saw during the Chinese foreign minister's uh, visit to uh, Addis Ababa uh, a few months ago. Yes, exactly. Um, well, I think the African Union's relationship and work with China over the years is very interesting. Um, I think the first thing to look at is the is the Forum on China-Africa Corporation, um, basically FOCAC. So FOCAC was established in 2000. Um, it's an initiative formed by China and African countries to really strengthen Africa-China cooperation and also promote dialogue on various issues ranging from trade and infrastructure to agriculture and investment. Um, so we had the most recent FOCAC in 2021 in Dakar, um, and it's arguably the most important platform for these relations, and we've seen it grow much stronger over the last um, few years. Um, and then in 2011, we saw the AU Commission um, was admitted into FOCAC as a full member. Um, previously, it was just an observer. Um, so we've seen that also that FOCAC is aligning itself with the continent's core developmental framework, which is Agenda 2063. Um, in fact, during the Beijing Declaration um, in 2018, China really established a very clear sort of synergy between the BRI, which is the Belt and Road Initiative, and Agenda 2063. Um, and even in the most recent FOCAC, um, we've seen references to the AU's um, 10-year frameworks, um, as well as um, the, the 15 flagship projects under the AU. Um, and we've also seen um, the AU Commission um, having cooperation um, documents that are also signed with China regarding um, the BRI. And so I think China really does continue to show strong interest um, in aligning with Africa's development strategies, um, PETA, which is the program for um, infrastructure development, um, is also another um, important um, body within the AU that also works on this. Um, and I think also another key part of this relationship is the is the AU-China Strategic Dialogue for Peace and Security. Um, it was established in 2014, um, and we actually had that dialogue um, also happen earlier this year as well. And so peace and security has been a, a critical area, um, actually, between um, AU and China's um, relationship. Um, so just to give you an example, um, in 2020, the, the AU Commissioner for Peace and Security and the Chinese head of mission to the AU, they signed agreements to really enhance China's support um, for the African standby force. Um, this includes things like delivering equipment and training, for instance. Um, we've also seen these sort of donations also happen um, in 2018. And I think another part of this relationship that really changed the dynamic was, you know, in 2015, um, China established a diplomatic mission to the AU, so sort of moving a bit beyond bilateral relations. And then in 2018, the AU opened an office um, in Beijing. And then even more recently, China is also the first country to support the African Union joining the G20. Um, China has been very vocal in encouraging the G20 um, and a greater role in general of the AU and sort of African voices within global governance. Um, we've also seen, you know, the African Union headquarters, which are located in Addis, was built by the Chinese government. We've also seen the Africa CDC headquarters, as Patrick was mentioning earlier. It was completed in Addis um, earlier this year, and it's being fully run by the African Union. So I think overall the relationship is very strong and it will get stronger, I believe. Um, I think in terms of your question, in terms of looking forward as well to this relationship, um, what Patrick is mentioning about the AFCFTA, I mean, AFCFTA is a 
$4 trillion economic block, right? And it's expected to be the world's largest free trade zone. Um, so I think the AFCFTA will have massive benefits for the African economy. Um, and China, as the continent's largest bilateral trading partner, will definitely benefit from this. Um, and we've seen that trade is a core priority area uh, within recent FOCAC um, commitments. Um, and China has clearly shown commitment to supporting the continent's economic growth through enhancing trade and infrastructure development. Um, and we've seen the Chinese government explicitly support the AFCFTA. So I think the relationship has grown much stronger over the last few years, and I think it will continue to grow stronger um, as these as these relationships strengthen. No, definitely. I think this is such an it's going to be such an interesting area where our leaders have to also show a little bit of where their political alliances lie and not necessarily alliance to China or alliance to the US, but in terms of what do they want to advance for our people in the specific moment? Um, I An area, though, that I think, you know, we can't avoid when we're talking about China and Africa is the question of debt. Debt in Africa is a huge topic. We spoke about debt uh, with one of our guests from Zambia, Professor Grieve Chelwa, uh, just a few weeks ago. Doctor. Doctor, <laughs> Dr. Grieve. But he'll be a professor soon, don't worry. <laughs> and I know that you've been doing a lot of work, of course, around the debt question. So, you know, for those of us who, who are, you know, quite green around the economics questions and, and areas, we often hear about, you know, the kind of borrowers club and borrowers being in a disadvantaged position vis-a-vis uh, -vis lenders when they're negotiating their debt. So how can African and how have African countries, if they have, how can African countries basically be equals on the playing field with their lenders? Like, how, what is the what is the alternative? Because right now we we read the headlines and we see how Africans are not able to negotiate the debts. And we, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, Ethiopia um, met with. Am I correct? It's Ethiopia met with um, the Ethiopian Foreign Ministry met with the Chinese to. Uh, discuss how they could renegotiate and restructure their debt repayment. Yes, yes, after their conversation. Yes, after their... So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that as well, but basically, could you tell us about what kind of is happening and what you believe would help to equal the playing field? Yes. Um, yeah, so we definitely get this question a lot. Um, African debt is definitely a hot topic, um, for sure. And um, so the reality is, unfortunately when borrowers you know seek to gain finance so african borrowers in this in this case seek to gain external financing they often they often enter into negotiations where they have very limited bargaining power and are very disadvantaged um and the paris club for instance is a, is a perfect example of creditors really coming together and excluding borrowers um from these negotiations um and so at dr We've been really pushing um, for something known as the borrowers club. So essentially, um, through a borrowers club, African countries would be able to to club together, to to take out loans, negotiate um, debt terms, um, really share information on 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 the terms of their contracts with different lenders, um, and use the club to basically enhance borrower agency. Um, borrowers would be able to use each other's growth prospects as collateral. 
um, thereby reducing risks. Um, so African countries can use this club also to restructure debt amongst themselves. Um, so what that means is that um, debt repayments are essentially spread amongst many borrowers, um, which will also create fiscal space. Um, and if you look you know, on the African continent, we have an annual infrastructure gap of 100 billion USD. Um, so we really need to make the system work for us. Um, and I won't go into too many details about the borrower club itself, um, but it essentially flips the coin from the current status quo, because the bottom line is the current financial architecture is very creditor centric. Um, and in order for Africa to meet its developmental goals, there needs to not only be more financing available, but al also cheaper concessional financing. Um, and I think it's time that, you know, borrowers really take matters into their own hands and ensure that they, they get most out of um, all the deals that they make um, with lenders and be able to really support each other um, and, and use that as an opportunity to get better terms um, in all the loans that they take, um, essentially. I mean, it's sort of wild to me that there isn't a borrower's club because I think a kernel of what you've spoken about is... We already have um, examples in history. I mean, Thomas Sankara of Burkina Faso, he was calling for in, what was it, 1980, I want to say 86? When was it? 1986? But in the late 80s, he was calling for a united front against debt and basically saying, you know, as African, as borrowers, as you put it, um, as African countries who are not only, you know, feeling the weight of the historical debt burden, but now we're approaching the kind of neoliberalization era where a lot of us are having to borrow because uh, we're not able to to basically deal with any of our internal issues. So it's, it is kind of wild to me that that hasn't already existed or that they haven't banded together. Uh, I don't know, why, why do you think that is? Is it just politics? Is it a lack of coordination? Is it, what is it? What is it? I mean, I think definitely there needs to be greater coordination. So, so we took this, this concept was essentially taken from um, microfinance. Um, so there's a concept of the Grameen Bank, which started in Bangladesh, um, which essentially had the goal of offering credit to low-income earners. So um, low-income earners that essentially found it difficult to access credit um, due to a variety of different reasons, for instance, not having formal employment or or any of that sort, um, the the bank essentially, uh, the bank system essentially allowed them to basically club together um, to be able to take out loans um, and to be able to share the risks that come from the loans amongst um, themselves. So we do see the borrowers club um, happening and being done in, at the at the micro level. Um, and I think that with everything that we're seeing around failures around the Paris Club with the G20 Common Framework um, and all these quote-unquote institutions that are put to quote-unquote benefit borrowers, um, I think establishing something not just for African countries, but even other um, other countries that seek to gain uh, external financing, um, creating such a club would be, would be a game changer in many ways. Indeed, and uh, it is very strange that <laughs> none of the borrowers <laughs> seem to have some sort of, associ of association or actually be represented in these uh, sort of bodies. Following up on this, what is your take on the African Union's approach to the debt crisis? Because there definitely is a debt crisis in Africa today. Uh, more broadly, uh, within the intergovernmental uh, solutions to debt, 
Can you tell us a little bit about the G20 Common Framework for Debt Treatment and what its impact has been thus far? Is this actually working for African nations? And um, if yes, why? And if no, why not? Particularly because China is sitting as one of the co-chairs alongside France. So uh, it'll be interesting to hear your take on that element of the dynamic. Thanks, Imadius. Um, Yes, okay, well, there's a lot to cover um, with that question. Um, So the G20 Common Framework um, for Debt Treatment, it was an initiative that was endorsed by G20 countries along with uh, Paris Club countries in 2020. Um, Essentially, it was established to support low-income countries with unsustainable debt. Um, So the way that this works is that on a case-by-case basis, Um, eligible debtor countries require debt treatment um, from the common framework. And once a country requests uh, for that to happen, a creditor committee is established um, to evaluate that country. Um, Now, the discussions are often informed by IMF and World Bank DSA, Debt Sustainability Analysis. Uh, Essentially, debt relief is provided based on a country's ability um, to pay. Um, and, I, and I would like to talk about this a little bit because um, the DSA is in many ways problematic and we do a lot of work and analysis around this at, at Development Reimagined. Um, so the World Bank and IMF often classify African countries as being at high risk or in debt distress. Um, so just to put this a little bit into perspective, just to give you a couple of numbers on that, um, in 2022, 79 countries had debt-to-GDP ratios that were over 60%. 26 of those were African. Um, And of all the countries that were considered in debt distress or at high risk, all 23 were considered African. And then when you look at the World Bank's, you know, predicted 10 fastest growing African countries in 2024, five of them are also on the latest list of being at high risk or debt distressed. So the analysis is very problematic. Um, So from the very beginning, the fact that the DSA um, is considered in this framework shows us major flaws. Um, So that will be one major point. Um, Second, there also needs to be greater incentives for private sector creditors to join. Um, So for the African continent, private creditors actually account for more than 40% of the continent's debt. So if you don't include private financiers um, in this debt restructuring, then a big part of the picture um, is missing. Um, Another thing is around transparency. There isn't much transparency around this whole process. Um, And so there needs to be a lot of accountability and transparency around this and information needs to be made available um, because we truly don't know what the details of this process is. So um, as of today, um, four countries have asked um, for restructuring. So that's Chad, um, Zambia, Ethiopia, and very recently Ghana. Um, But Chad has been the only country that has been able to reach um, a debt treatment agreement. And mind you, this is two years after, almost two years after. So it's taken a very long time for even Chad to be able to reach this. Um, and this is, you know, due to a lot of different reasons, it, partly due to having to coordinate all these creditors, um, as well as, you know, different government institutions and agencies um, is also, you know, a huge factor. So the process is very long. Um, there is no clear timeline. Um, 
and not to mention there is no interim relief. Um, so there's no like freeze on debt service payments for these countries um, that are requesting for this to happen. Um, so interestingly, like Ghana, for instance, even before joining the common framework, had to explicitly request that the process be expedited. So what this does is it puts countries in very uncomfortable situations. Um, it forces them to cut out important priority expenditures. Um, and, and, and so we see a lot of these issues. Um, and so at, at DR, we actually interestingly have a report coming out soon um, that looks at four African countries, Ethiopia, Zambia, Kenya, and Chad, um, who've asked for G20 restructuring. Um, Kenya is currently just rumored to, to be doing that. Um, and so for these countries, we found that they will need to spend between 9.7 to 49% of their GDP annually on infrastructure to meet the SDGs. Um, and these countries are considered high or in debt distress. So you can imagine how countries going through the G20 process still have to continue, right? Paying all of these, um, you know, putting out all of this financing to, to do the most critical things, such as infrastructure. Um, and I think, you know, G20 creditors also just, there's a lot of disagreement amongst themselves about what debt needs to be covered by this framework. Um, and also how comparability of treatment needs to be applied. Um, and, and frankly, um, there doesn't seem to be any solid incentive for African countries to go to the common framework, considering how dysfunctional it has been. Um, so basically, to answer your question, no, it is not working for African countries um, or any country at all. Um, and, and I think something that's also important to raise in conjunction with this, um, and also to, to pull in China a bit as well, is the role of multilateral debt relief. Um, this is something that's not discussed enough and needs to be in the picture. Um, so Hannah Ryder, uh, our CEO, and I recently wrote a report on this, uh, an article, I mean, sorry, on the importance of multilateral debt relief um, and the push by China for this to happen. So China has been pushing for multilateral debt relief for a long time. This is not something that's new. And the case for that is very strong. Um, and primarily because a third of African debt is multilateral. Um, and the World Bank and AFDB, the African Development Bank, are the largest multilateral financiers. And multilateral debt relief is not included in the framework as well. So there's another picture that's missing. Um, and I know I'm talking a lot, but um, just very quickly on the African Union. No, don't <laughs> um, the AU This has is great. This is super interesting. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Um, and just quickly on the, not quickly, on the African Union, the AU has spoken um, about the inform the importance of, you know, reforming the debt relief architecture of um, establishing an African credit rating agency. Um, so as you know, credit rating agencies have a lot of power. And this is referring back to sort of my point around the DSA and classifying African countries at high risk or in debt distress, this really creates a negative impact of, um, of African countries. And this has an impact because you know, it really reduces investment that goes into these countries, um, and it leads to what is known as the African risk premium. Um, but sort of, and I'm, and I'm not sure if Patrick mentioned this earlier, but also at the AU summit that happened last month, an African debt observatory was also announced um, which is a critical step, really, for African countries to be able to, you know, take the debt narrative into their own hands, 
um, but also provide really sound advice um, to African countries. I'm super interested in this topic and Tricontinental, the institute I also work for, is also going to uh, publish a study in a couple of months, more of a theoretical argument around the question of debt in Africa. So I'd be super interested in uh, reading your study that's coming out and see where the conversation and dialogue between our our different uh, interventions may lie. But I did want to ask about the debt observatory um, were there any kind of specifics around how it will operate or where it will be based? I assume obviously in Addis Ababa, but do you know any about anything about the details of the setup? Um, no, I just all, all I've seen is that they will launch a debt status data bank um, around it, but specific details I, I haven't seen anything. But there might be. I mean, it was announced at, at the summit, but um, where it will be based. Um, and detailed information I have not seen, unfortunately. But I, I think it, it's something that is definitely being discussed a lot about and has a lot of potential. Um, yeah, but I think um, over the next few months, we will definitely see more information around that as well. And, and we're closely following that at DR as well. And we, we, we will see how that will um, and we of. will definitely uh, discuss this on future episodes of The Crane and um, on the Dongsheng uh, social media, because this is something we are very interested in. I also just wanted to say thank you for so clearly and succinctly explaining what is happening with the G20 framework, because this is something that affects me personally. I live in Zambia, the first African country to default on its uh debt obligations during COVID. And this whole issue uh, with uh, multilateral debt forgiveness and relief, um, forget about forgiveness, let's talk about relief and management, has been so heavily politicized, both locally within the country, but also by uh, major powers. You know, the United States specifically has made multiple factually untrue um, statements regarding um, Zambia's debt to China and the status of uh, negotiations regarding this, um, including, I think the last big one was made by Secretary uh, of um, the Treasury, uh, Janet Yellen herself in Zambia, you know, uh, and the Chinese embassy very uncharacteristically, very strongly uh, opposed this and made a very strong statement saying this is not true. We are mm-hmm. actually in ongoing discussions with the Zambian government. Um, and, you know, indirectly they said what they are not necessarily interested in is <laughs> in uh, having other people come into this discussion outside of common agreed upon frameworks. So thank you for putting that into perspective. That is really, really important. And, uh, yeah, I guess Zambia is a test case for Africa and how this is, how this is going to go down. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you both because I know we're actually like just over an hour now and we really are nearing an hour in the recording, but in real time, (laughs) more than an hour. So I just want to thank you both so much for taking the time, you know, preparing for this, sharing um, the work you guys are working on. And uh, we will give you, we'll, we'll give you more details when we are publicizing it. But we hope to really follow your work and continue to have interesting discussions because um, we, of course, are you know amateurs 
just interested in the continent, just interested in geopolitics. And so we really appreciate some experts like you joining us. Thank you so it's much. been a pleasure. Thank you for having us.